Over the past two weeks when I was with you, we were looking at Calvin and his theology of union with Christ. If I could summarize that in a very basic way, remember union with Christ is the starting point for redemption applied. You and I have no blessings at all apart from a spirit-wrought faith union with Jesus Christ. Now, one way to try to characterize that is that this union is a present union. It's a present union. Present union with Christ. Remember, I was trying to accent the fact that the, the issue that we dealt with regarding union with Christ is how does what Christ has accomplished once for all in his life, death, and resurrection, how does that, that occurred 2,000 years ago, become mine? How do I come to participate in what Christ has accomplished once for all? Calvin's answer is spirit-wrought faith union with Christ. That is a present, if I could be a little more technical, a present personal existential reality for you and me. When, when Christ becomes ours by faith, all that it is in him becomes ours as well. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Remember that, 1 Corinthians 1.30. That is something Calvin insists on as basic to the Christian life. That's the starting point. Now, here's the question. Try to patch something together here. The question is this. Present union is an established fact for us. By faith, we believe in Jesus Christ. All that is in him is ours. Here's the question. On what basis did God choose to save those who in fact come to believe in Jesus Christ? In other words, presently, you trust in Jesus Christ. God has given you a gift of faith. It's not from yourself. It is a gift, not by works, lest you should boast. And you stand in the presence of God by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the question, why? On what basis has God ordained to save you in the first place? If you ask the question, why am I a believer and other people have not come to believe, why did God choose me to be included in Christ? And when you... Oh, let's start singing. If I had a hymn, we would just start. Absolutely, I can tell. It is by... I'm going to piece together what I heard. It is by sovereign mercy and grace. I think I heard all of those things. You know my lesson today, don't you? Because you're Calvinist, right? Uh, Calvin is, it wants us to recognize that whatever we have in terms of our present spiritual benefits in Christ, that can be, that can be extrapolated back to what Calvin calls um, a loving, eternal decree of predestination. Is that large enough? That's the best I can do. Okay. Um, eternal predestination. And the reason why I tried to map it out this way is that John Calvin, if he has a favorite text for present personal union, it's 1 Corinthians 1.30. If he has a couple of favorite texts for the eternal predestination that grounds our union with Christ, it is Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. 
And it's, it's, very, it's very interesting that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 begins here. If I could try it this way. The Apostle Paul begins in terms of present union with Christ. He begins in Ephesians 1, 3, right here with the present reality. Then in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, he moves back to discuss the eternal basis or eternal ground for our present union with Christ. And listen to the way this reads in Ephesians 1. I'll read verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's verse 3. What's true for us now? Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, the reason why I've chosen this, I want you to notice the seamless transition that Paul makes from present, realized blessing in Christ for you who believe, verse 3, back to the eternal foundation of that present redemptive reality in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. And because we've spent a lot of time on Ephesians 1, 3, just notice this. This is the summary of what we talked about last week. God has now blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when Calvin begins to comment on Ephesians 1, 4 and 6, listen to what he says. Moving to verse 4, he says this. When Paul teaches that we are chosen in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, he takes away all real consideration of worth on our part. For it is just as if God had said, since among all the offspring of Adam, the heavenly Father found none worthy of his election, he turned his eyes upon his anointed, upon Jesus Christ. Let this reasoning then prevail among believers. We are adopted in Christ into the eternal inheritance because in ourselves we were not capable of such great excellence. Now here's, what, here's where this, the encouragement already begins. When, when the, the transition occurs from the present blessing in verse 3 to that which is before the foundation of the world, verse 4, before God had even laid the foundation of the world, verse 4, Calvin wants us to have this firmly fixed in our minds, that the reason why God has chosen us rests not on his perceived awareness of our excellence, but on his knowledge of the excellence of another, namely Jesus Christ. Now, this is why you can be secure in Christ. One reason, when you start tracing back 
your present blessings to their eternal foundation, you're going to find them rooted in the eternal love of the Father and the eternal excellence of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to study what some people have called the anatomy of election according to John Calvin. And if I can just preface it this way, um, given what Calvin has said, this is designed to help strip you of any estimate of your own worth and reconstitute your understanding of worth found in Christ alone. And this is, this is where, in my opinion, if you ask me this question, um, where does true piety begin? It begins by recognizing I have nothing by which I can commend myself to God and then I flee to Christ and rest upon Him because in Him alone is found worth and excellence and merit and righteousness. So let's look at that a little bit in Ephesians 1.4. Let's follow Calvin's uh, insight. First, just to, to, to state what could be um, obvious to you, verse 4 does move us from the present to the eternal, to that which is pre-temporal. And that appears in verse 4 where Paul says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This language of the foundation before the foundation of the world brings into view a state of affairs that occurred or obtained prior to any act of creation at all. It, it signals that pretemporal existence that God has. God existed even before he created the world. And the world comes into being. God doesn't. God has always existed. And the, the fact that this is something that predates the existence of the world is um, paralleled in John seventeen twenty four. Remember Jesus' high priestly prayer? Jesus, Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me would be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, prior to God laying the foundation of the world, prior to the act of creation, wholly apart from that, God existed. And according to Ephesians 1.4, God was active. He chose us in Him, in the Son, before He created a thing. So that apart from creation, in eternity, God chose His people to be His own. And so it's like this. It's as though, if you could think of history and time as a veil, and we can't see through it now. You can't look beyond it right now. Ephesians 1.4 is one of those rare moments in Scripture where God removes a veil of time, and he allows you to see into the eternal counsel of God himself. And as you peer behind history, as you look, as it were, past time into an eternity past, Paul is saying that God, even then, chose you to be in him, in Christ. So that preceding this present personal being in Christ is, I'll use a technical term here, a predestinarian sense. 
an eternal sense, a pretemporal sense of being in him. Jesus didn't start loving you when you came to faith in him. God didn't choose you when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. The choice is from before the foundation of the world. It's an eternal choice. And secondly, I want you to notice in Ephesians 1.4 that this is an unconditional election, an unconditional choice. And John Calvin is extremely useful on this, and I'll give you a quotation from him that I think is, is very memorable and very useful. But notice this language very carefully with me. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I don't know about what translation you have. Some translations may have, in order that you may be holy and blameless in him. In order that. And the reason why I accent that question is that in the history of the church, there has been a debate over the basis for God choosing whom he will save. Some who would hold to an Arminian theology, remonstrant Arminian theology, would argue that God chooses whom he will save based on what he foresees them doing. So if you, if you use me as an example, according to Arminian theology, God foresaw that in 1987... I would cooperate with his Holy Spirit and I would choose to believe in Jesus Christ. And on the basis of what he foresaw me doing, something good, he chose to save me. And therefore, his choice was conditioned on something he foresaw in me, some good quality, some holy quality, some righteous quality, namely, cooperating with the gospel and being saved. So that on that view, on the Arminian view, foreseen holiness, foreseen faith, foreseen repentance is the ground for God's choice, is the basis for God's choice. That's that's what the, the classic remonstrant Arminian view is. Calvin looks at this text and says that cannot be the case. That the language will not let you say that foreseen holiness is the ground for God's choice. Here's why. Notice, God chose us so that, as a result of his choice, we would be holy and blameless. Our holiness is not the cause of God's choice, but the result of God's choice. That's the foundational difference between Arminianism and Calvinism on this particular text. Calvin says this, If God chooses us that we might be holy, then he did not choose us because he foresaw that we would be holy. For when it is said that believers were chosen that they might be holy, it is suggested, and here it is, listen, that the holiness that was to be in them originated in election. It originated in God. God did not look at you and say, I foresee holiness and faith and repentance, and on that basis I'm going to choose you for salvation. No. God's choosing you is what 
grounds your holiness. It's what accounts for your holiness. So God's choice is not caused by foreseen holiness. God's choice is the cause of our holiness. And so this language is very clear elsewhere. Titus 3, 5, for instance, Paul says, God saved us not because of righteous things we had done, not based on any righteous thing that we had done, but he saved us by his own grace. And the reason why this is important from a pastoral standpoint is this. Think about this. Think with me for a second. If God chose you because he foresaw some righteous or holy quality that you would have. At the end of the day, who gets the final nod of credit for your salvation? Yeah, what, what makes you, what makes you um, either saved or lost is something that was in you all along. And God foresaw it. No. That's not right. That is the kind of thing that produces a kind of... Um, if I could put it this way, a self-centered, self-sufficient species of Christianity. And that's a contradiction in terms. There's, there's, no, there's no sense in which God chose you because you were already some way better than the people that um, he may not have chosen, that he would have passed over. Calvin's saying this, if you have holiness, if you um, possess any kind of quality that's pleasing in the sight of God, Don't root it in yourself, but in God's eternal decree of election. Question? I was just going to comment on the pastoral standpoint, too. For those in their haughty terms, it becomes a source of boasting. Mm -hmm. You ultimately are your own savior. But then for the sensitive heart going through deep waters and times of doubting, the other problem is, what if I become unholy? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not acting as holy. Does God then reject me? That's right. Uh, and and those, are, those are very legitimate questions and concerns. And from a pastoral standpoint, the, the, the longer you're a believer, the, the more obvious it is to you that God could never have chosen you because of anything good in you. Right? The, lo- older, the older you get. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. And so, so, so what, what Calvin is saying has wonderful pastoral benefit for the church, that, that holiness is not the cause of God's election, but the result of it. And secondly, if you ask this question, okay, well, we've, we see what it's not. God didn't choose me because I was holy, or he foresaw me as being holy. That, that focuses on me in relationship to God's decree. Now, here's the question, Okay. If God did not choose me because I'm holy, but his choice is what accounts for my holiness, why did he do it? What's, what's the question? You know, let's answer that question. Why would God choose me? And the answer is in verse 5. Really in a prepositional phrase. In love. In love, he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Here it is. According to to the kind intention or good pleasure of his will. Verse 4 tells us that God chose us so that we might be holy. And what is the basis of his choice? What's this? Loving, sovereign, good pleasure. Loving, sovereign, good pleasure. 
Calvin puts it this way. To say that God chooses us according to the good pleasure of his will means the same thing as to say that he considered nothing outside himself with which he was to be concerned in making his decree. Now, the reason why I think this is so important is this. Notice when we ask the question, what was God looking at when he chose to save us? What was God in his eternal um, decree? What was he taking into account when he predestined us to be adopted as his children? Let's start it this way. Who's absent in verse 5? Yeah, we're chosen, absolutely. So, so we're present in that sense. But does he say anything about inequality within us? No. What's the accent? Love and sovereign good pleasure. Those are the two things. Love and sovereign good pleasure. And if I can put it this way, you know what God did know about you and me? He knew that we were not worthy of his love. He knew that we were rebels. He knew that if we had the opportunity when he sent his only begotten son into the world that we would crucify him. He knew that we despised him. He knew that we would not love him. He knew that we were not worthy of his love. He knew that we deserved his wrath. And he loved us. And he predestined us. And he did it according to his sovereign good pleasure. Luther said it this way. God's will knows no why beyond God himself. If you sit around and puzzle over why me, why would God love me? Why would God elect me? Why would God predestine me? Why would God call me and save me and justify me and sanctify me? The answer to that question is nothing in you provides the answer to that question. It's love and and, um, God's good pleasure. Yes, ma'am. You know what? Let's, let me get to Romans 9 here in a second. And I think we will understand better in heaven. But comprehend? We'll try. We'll try. I, I don't think we'll get there. But, and I'll try here in Sunday school. And I don't think I'll get there. But let me, let me, let, let, let me, let me, because you anticipated what my very next verse is here from Calvin. Great question. I love it. You're thinking right along with me. Yes, sir. That sounds very wrong. Um, <laughs> Sorry, but it just sounds very wrong. Um, that Because election is something, you know, ask God and he will elect you if you're asking him with all his heart. That, that kills verse 4. Before the foundation of the world, this has been established by God. It's, your election is not something that arises in your moment of decisional crisis. It's something that begins, as it were, before the foundation of the world. So that's what's wrong there. There's some pastoral wisdom there. I'm just telling you what I think is wrong there. And I don't want to... Question? Yeah, you're, okay. Let me get there. And, and then I'll, I'll, pull this, I'll pull this question here in one second. Um, let, me, let me use a, an illustration that might answer the why question. Um, and, and I'll do my best to talk about the twin aspects of predestination. Because one aspect of predestination is that God chooses some to save. Another aspect is that he passes over blessing on others. And here's, the, here's the, the key. Romans 9, Calvin loves. Romans 9. This was how the promise was stated, verse 9. 
At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, the question here is obvious that, uh, or the issue here is obvious, that if God didn't take into account what the twins had done before they were born, um, if before any good or bad had been done, it had been ordained and established, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, the point is that human striving and human effort does not come into consideration in God's discrimination between Jacob and Esau. Verse 17 The scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He's another good example. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? If the question is is this, and and this is a a stronger form of the the question that was asked earlier, and I'll start with the strongest form and then we can work down. The, The argument is, wait a second. If all of this depends upon God and not upon human desire or effort, and God has mercy upon whom he will have mercy, Someone will say, then why does God still hold those who are not saved accountable? Why does, he, why does he still hold them accountable? Why does he still judge them if they couldn't be saved apart from his mercy in the first place and it does not depend on human effort or desire but on God's mercy? In other words, the, the, the question is, why would God still blame me if I'm not a believer? Because in his eternal predestination, Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, he didn't choose me in the first place. Well, it's at that point that we are right up against one of the most difficult mysteries in all of Scripture. And if I could, if I could find a maxim in Scripture that teaches us how to stand before the Lord in a context like this, it's Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord. The things he has revealed belong to us and our children. And we may teach them. God has not told us why. He's he's not revealed to us why he has chosen to pass over some. He has told us uh, the ultimate why. He has told us simply this, that he has ordained to judge those who are wicked in his sight because he is righteous. And it is grace. Grace is something that he can show 
and give or something he can withhold. And the analogy that's used just later in Romans 9 is, does the, does the, the clay have the right to say to the potter, why did you make me like this? And, but, and, and so the, the issue here is there's really no ultimate reason beyond God's love and will that he chose to save us. And there's no reason beyond God's righteousness and the necessity that he judge to explain why he will judge those who ultimately perish. It's a difficult, difficult doctrine. The point is this, and, and I, I, I've, I've seen three hands and we'll get, we'll get to questions here in a second. But the pastoral, the, the thing that's useful for you and me is simply this, that if God has loved us from all eternity according to his good pleasure, and it does not depend on anything that we do, the inference is this, then there is nothing in all of creation that can separate you from his love. If he has loved you with an everlasting love that precedes creation, nothing in all of creation can separate you from God's love. Nothing. Height, depth, breadth, width, persecution, famine, nakedness, nothing can. And the, 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 the theology of predestination and election and this is the way Calvin uh, organized the institutes, was really brought in to give comfort to the elect in Christ. It raises some difficult questions about the identity of those who do not come to know Christ. And the ultimate answer is Romans 9.20. And I'm not sure uh, how well we'll understand the secret things of God in the world to come. But the one thing we can know right now is that God has loved us with an everlasting love that is not conditioned on any good thing he foresees in us. And so we can rest in a sovereign and unchanging and unconditional love. Loved us when we were unlovely and looks to us um, in love in his Son. And so the reason why we're in Christ and the reason why God loved us rests really to the praise of his glory and grace. And then the final thing before we get to question, the why, um, why does God do what he does? Really, the final assessment is found in Ephesians 1.6, and I'll wrap this up quickly because I want to have question and answer time, is for his own glory. Now, this is hard for us. The way we think uh, as, as fallen creatures will always, it's still in us in various degrees right now. We don't want a God who does what he does for his glory. We want someone to do something for our comfort, for our ease of mind, for our peace of mind. What God does is God-centered to the core. It is to the praise of his glory, to a recognition of his sovereignty, so that Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is glorious and sovereign and worthy of praise. And, and the, the human dimension here of, of the, the, the authentic questions that arise in light of this are to be wrestled with genuinely, but within two basic parameters, that God has done what he has done for his glory and for the salvation of his people. 
and that we reach a point where the creator-creature distinction is the ultimate and final explanation for what God has done. Where he, he says to us at a certain point in our questioning, who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? And that's not meant to be in a, in, a, in, a, a, in a proud, condescending way. It's simply for us to recognize that we will never transcend our boundaries as creatures as long as we live. And the prerogative to do all things for his glory resides with God and, and God alone. So that I think that one of the questions that was asked earlier, in heaven will we be asking these sorts of questions or praising God for the glory of his grace and the perfection of his holiness and righteousness? I think we'll be doing both. And the question about, if I could put it this way, some of us experience, I'm with you, a little bit of cognitive unrest about this. Oh, but what about those he doesn't choose? That sense of unrest, I think the Lord, who is the ultimate pastor, the eschatological pastor, the perfect pastor, will lift that burden. Whatever that burden is, he will lift it. And he will give you what you need in order to endlessly offer worship and praise for his sovereignty and his grace and his righteousness and his justice. I don't know what he'll do. But I know he will. His people will not have a single unresolved problem in their hearts or minds. Every burden will be taken away. Every tear will be wiped. And, and the Lord will pastor us perfectly in light of this. And here's where I want you to be. I want you to trust him. He will do that. You may not have that yet. You see through a glass darkly. But when Jesus Christ returns, every question that you have will be perfectly answered to your absolute satisfaction. I promise. Till then, you're going to have to put up with people like me just telling you he's going to do it. And I know you can't wait till he does it. But trust in him. Trust in him. Now, I saw questions. Yes, ma'am. I'll try to answer. I've seen... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Peter's asking what's going on in the future, and he indicates that Peter will be a martyr. Right. Well, then John, Peter starts going further into it, and he looks at the beloved John going around, and he said, well, how about him? And he said, what's that to you? Right. You focus on me. Yeah. You know, he really rebuked, it's just yeah. confirming what you're He really did. He took that said, strategy. Trust me. Because yes, Peter's just like us, going, well, right. now we're talking about the future. How about him? Right. And, and, and here's the beauty of it. In retrospect. What's that to Exactly. What is it to you, Peter? And once Peter passed through the valley of the shadow of death and Christ took him to be with him in glory, you know, 2 Corinthians 5.10, being with the Lord away from the body, Peter looks back and says, I see the wisdom. I see exactly why you told me to do that. So that's a good illustration, a very good illustration. Yes? I just wanted to comment that I appreciate your thinking carefully as a theologian and yet having a pastoral concern. I also appreciate Charlie's heart for the lost, young and old, mm-hmm. uh, and actively doing that. One thing I did want to say, because I think it sometimes does get misunderstood and caricatured, the one thing I would say to Charlie the evangelist is, nowhere in our reformed doctrine of evangelism does it call us to figure out whether the person is elect or not. 
in order to share the gospel. If Absolutely. Hold to the free offer of the gospel and the sower of the seed to all yeah. kinds of soil. Absolutely. And then for the person who's on his knees before God, the other thing that's a little bit erroneous is what isn't wrong in that is necessarily the contrition of spirit. Right. If the person's getting before the Lord and humbling themselves, what they need to be assured of is you do not need to figure out whether you're elect or not. Yeah, you need to look to Christ. A trite spirit, God will not be despised. You don't, because that becomes a pastoral thing for the person who's considering the faith of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying decisional evangelism, but what I'm saying yeah, is yeah, know, that person should be encouraged to say, this is what God calls you to, to humble yourself in repentance and faith. And right. be assured that you do right. that. It's not because you do that you'll be saved, but be assured that's in keeping with his sovereignly electing you. Yeah, you almost want to... have to figure out, yeah. am I on the naughty or nice list? Am I yeah. on the elect list or the not yeah. in order to come to God? Yeah. He will not turn you away. That's right. Uh, and and you, you almost you want to say to the person who's on his knees praying, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Am I? You want to say, you're fine. <laughs> you know, you're, this is good. This yes. is a great time. Second Peter 1, you know, you're working out your salvation uh, to... Philippians 2, working out your salvation, you're making your calling and election sure by these very things that you're doing and um, coming to know it. By the way, if you want a good book, this is a good point, on the compatibility of God's sovereignty and evangelism, read J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. If, If you care to do this, this is a little nerdy of me and you don't have to do this, read it once a year. Yeah, I know. But, but just, it's just so useful. It's so helpful. Yes. Right. Which, which just presumes on this. Grace is, by definition, free. God's not obligated to save anyone, and Americans presuppose he is. And I think two things that that betrays is this, that in, in the United States especially, you know what we just don't get? We don't get, too, well, we don't get much, to be honest with you, theologically. Um, we, we really don't, because, because we're so self-aggrandizing um, and self-assertive and independent. Two things that if you get these things, the rest of this falls is sin. You don't, we don't get the, the debauchery and wickedness of sin and how odious and repugnant it is in the sight of God. We just, we don't, we don't have a clue. It's kind of like, well, hey, why didn't God choose us? And secondly, I don't think we have grasped what infinite holiness and perfect righteousness means for the character of God relative to sin. I mean, if you have biblical instincts, here's what it is. Sin, judgment. Sin, judgment. Sin, judgment. God cannot stand to look upon sin. And so to reason that out of this mass of sinful humanity, God has some kind of obligation to save that which is just ultimately um, abhorrent in his sight is totally gratuitous and runs counter to the biblical record. The amazing thing, what ought to make us all ponder is that he saved anyone in the first place. Anyone, much less you and me, because we know who we are, right? We know the depths of our sin, not as well as God, by the way, of course, but we know it. And the thing that should, should just uh, make us wonder is, is that God would save anyone. That's, that's the really amazing thing. Um, and and we're, we're up against mystery, but um, we have a God who has, think of this, think of if you if you want if if these are questions that have plagued you, just just from what we've done today, think of how much God has condescended and communicated to us about this topic. Because I'm not just standing up here saying oh, I'm totally clueless. I have no idea. God hasn't spoken to it at all. 
No, think of it. God has spoken very clearly about these issues, and there are boundaries. And what the Christian life is, is a process of doing is becoming comfortable with and recognizing and ultimately praising God in terms of the boundaries by which he's communicated to us. Yes, sir. That's that's absolutely right. And uh, on the Romans nine, that's I agree with you one hundred times over. And between nineteen and twenty, there could have been some kind of defense or some kind of uh, explanation other than what Paul gives. And just a quick aside, funny story. Um, there was a student once who thought he had found the answer to the problem of predestination. Um, and he was, he was talking, thinking about it on his own, kind of, and thought to himself, you know, this is just not fair. This isn't right. If God uh, predestines in advance whom he's going to save and whom he's going to judge, then there can't be any kind of, uh, of um, if you put it this way, there can't be any kind of, uh, oh, blame assigned to the person who is ultimately judged. And he went to a professor and told him about it. The professor said, you know what? Um, that, that very issue is raised in the Bible. And the student said, oh, I've, I'm really, you know, I'm a bright guy. I've already figured this out, haven't I? And he said, now let's look at Romans 9. Led the student through Romans 9, got to 19 and asked the very question that the student had been asking. And in verse 20, just completely transform this student's understanding from that point forward. Romans 9.20, who are you to talk back to God? You know who the student was who became a Calvinist right at that moment? It's Edmund Clowney. That's, that's one of Clowney's stories, and he became a Calvinist. And, and he said that from that moment forward, he understood his place in the presence of God, which was not to talk back to him, but to worship him and serve him and study his word and proclaim it and so on. And so I, I pray that's, that's the kind of, uh, um, that's, that's how we need to approach this issue. And it's a difficult one. And, um, and I just wanted to underscore some of these pastoral concerns. Now, there was one more. Yes. Yes. How Yeah, well, here's, here's uh, a couple of things come to mind here. The question is, why pray? How, how, you know, what do you do, given the fact that this has already been ordained? If I could put it briefly, God always works out his eternal decree by means, by means. And what he does, there's a distinction in Scripture between his secret will and his revealed will. Deuteronomy 29, 20, the secret things belong to the Lord, the things that he has revealed to us, belong to us, so that we might believe them and teach them to our children, etc. Scripture teaches both that God is the sovereign agent who determines in advance the destiny of his people and the destiny of those who are not his people. And it is fixed in an eternal and unchanging way. Scripture commands us to pray for all men and women and children everywhere. And Romans 10, 14 through 17 asks this question, how are people going to be saved? 
how can they hear the gospel unless someone is sent? Which presupposes Great Commission, uh, uh, Matthew 28, ascending of emissaries and heralds and ambassadors of the gospel. And um, so that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The preaching of the word of God. So that the way God's decree works itself out in history is by fully engaging all of the um, responsibilities of his people. The secret thing is what God has ordained. The thing that he's revealed to us is that we should present the gospel, pray for its success, um, and make disciples of all nations. And these things, the, the secret and hidden will of God... That distinction, I think, is foundational in trying to understand this question. I've taught you about something secret today, part of his secret will. We, we can't know this will until after he returns. We will not know the identity of the elect and the reprobate infallibly until he returns. But what we do know until he returns is that our responsibility rests in presenting the gospel, praying for the lost, and discipling the nations and heralding it and teaching the whole counsel of God. Um, if you if you grab J.I. Packer's book, he works through text after text after text that that shows, if I can put it this way, the complementary relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and in a wonderfully capable way shows how the means by which God's sovereign decree works itself out is through the. Um, full engagement of his people obeying his will, which he makes them willing and able to do. And so it's a, it's a beautiful book. Yes, ma'am. This will be the last one, and then we'll... I, I know that we'll, you, want, you want a little time to prepare for worship, too. Yes, ma'am. Right. And, and, it's, uh, and this, is, this is one of those issues where I tell my students, I, I, I teach students about this topic and, and implications related to it. I tell them that probably about the worst thing that they can do when they approach an unbeliever is say, do you think you're elect? <laughs> you know, that, that's just, just one last pastoral concern. That, please, let's not do that. Because then, then you've got a guy who is, or a man or a woman or a child, whomever, who is under the judgment, wrath, and curse of God needs to flee to Jesus Christ to escape. And what all the Bible says that we need to do is, is preach Christ crucified, hold forth the gospel. And then we come up and complicate it beyond all imagining by having that person go, Am I a, what is elect again? What is that? And then you have this person who, it's kind of like the, the, the room is on fire. And right out there is the one who can save him. And you have him, you know, examine how quickly the building's burning or something like that. You know, boy, it's really coming along quick. And then, you know, you're, in other words, you've directed the, the attention toward something that is itself a problem and not even worthy of discussion. And you need to be pointing those people who do not know Christ to Christ. Um, you'll never find an example in Scripture of anyone bringing the gospel to unbelievers and asking that kind of question. You didn't even raise that. I'm just saying that's... But that's, that's the one last idea to, to keep in mind as we think this through. And, well, thank you. Now, next week, unless Dr. Jew does to his leg what I've done to mine or something, you know, comparable, I think his voice will be better and he'll be back. And I think he's going to be, a, be here a couple of weeks more and he's going to be doing Calvin and Puritanism and something else. So I 
I did a little pinch hitting for him, and he'll be back next week. Let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. And we thank you that we can trace the foundation of that gospel to a loving act of election from before the foundation of the world by which you predestined us to be adopted as your children. We thank you that this is to the praise of your glorious grace and that it strips us of all self-confidence and causes us to rest in Christ alone. We pray that you would bless us and fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and that you would prepare us even now for worship and feed us by your word and spirit and cause us to ride in the heights of Zion as we feast at a table that is set before us in Christ and as we dine with those who have gone to glory, cause us to remember and love and worship our triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.